listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. Today, we're being joined by John Brackett. He's the CEO and founder of Fidelity Business Partners, Inc. John founded Fidelity Business Partners in 2008, and their purpose is to build great apartment communities to improve how people live. I actually was lucky enough to be interviewed on John's podcast a few weeks ago. I was just so impressed with him as a businessman and as a person all around that I really couldn't wait to get him on my show. So, John, thank you so much for joining us today. Man, the pleasure is absolutely all mine. We had a great discussion when you were on and it was actually a great show. So, if anyone's listening, for those of you that are, check out that podcast that I did with Sterling because he, he shared some amazing insights. Awesome. So, John, let us just get kicked off. Can you tell us kind of your backstory, how you got into real estate, what got you started, maybe what you did before, and what made you make that transition? Yeah, no, no problem. I started off in commercial banking. Gosh, this was quite some time ago, probably now closer to uh, maybe 15, 17 years ago. But I started off in commercial banking, financing commercial real estate. And uh, in 2008, transitioned out of banking and decided to uh, go all in, right? Because one of the things that I learned in banking was most of the customers that I served, and, and I was a business banker, I, I predominantly, my, my role was to, was to essentially sell business customers into the bank, right? Move their deposits over and also loans, right? Originate loans for the bank, commercial loans. So most of the customers that I worked with, they generated between a million and $20 million in annual revenue. That was my target market. And so I started off doing that. Then, then I eventually, you know, finished my role at that bank. And this was um, at one of the larger Fortune 50 banks and uh, finished off as an area manager. And, and one of the big things that I noticed there is that all the very wealthy business customers that I work with, almost 100% of their wealth came from real estate. Back then, they don't do this now, but we got a lot of training. So we used to underwrite loans. They taught us how to underwrite loans, right? So then it's a little different. You go out and package a loan now and you ship it off to a centralized underwriting department, probably somewhere in Iowa. But back then, we actually got trained on how to sit with a client, ask for their tax returns, their financial statements, and literally we called it spreading a loan right there, right? So I could sit down with an owner and say, okay, yeah, we, we can do this loan. This roughly will be the amount. Okay. And it will take roughly X amount of time. And, you know, we were able to, to do that then. So it was a great skill set that I acquired because in apartment building, same thing, right? We're looking at financial statements. You have to understand how to read a balance sheet. You have to understand how to read an income statement. And there's a lot of value that you see inside of that as long as you understand what you're looking for. So that's how I got into this business. In 2008, when the market tanked, I told my wife, I said, hey, look, we have to be all in in this market because... This is going to be a once in a lifetime opportunity where we're going to get to buy assets in a market, you know, at these kind of prices, right? So that's how I started. We started buying single family residential properties, even though we had commercial backgrounds. My wife was a commercial real estate appraiser for about 10 years. And so, you know, we both understood the opportunity. Real estate was our background, so we're very comfortable in it. And uh, we just started buying. We started buying at that time the best opportunity available to us was single family residential homes. So we started flipping a lot of properties, probably over the course of maybe, I don't know, I want to say five or six years. We, you know, we flipped them almost a hundred properties. We built some pretty good cash to then transition back into 
what commercial a, real estate and start buying properties to hold. What a power couple for a real estate investment group where you have your commercial banking experience combined with her commercial appraising experience. I bet that was, was an invaluable asset going into this business. It really was. It was very helpful. It was very helpful. But at the end of the day, you know, you really learn by doing, right? Sure. You learn by doing. But I, I do really believe that there were some things that, that gave me an advantage when I was looking at deals and putting structures together that I think really favored the project and made the project a lot more profitable. So yeah, it, it was really helpful. And then Debbie, my wife, extraordinarily smart lady, and I'm very grateful for her. We've been married for 23 years, right? We have three oh, congratulations. So a very, very smart lady. And her feedback and input and insight, now I can say that was invaluable. She just has a very unique perspective, a very unique way of looking at things. And I think the combination is what really helped propel us forward. Well, so I have two comments. One is your commercial banking experience. I can speak to how incredibly valuable that is because my business partner in the syndication arm of my business, the reason I chose to work with him is he does exactly what you just described as his day job. He's, he's a commercial banker and he, he's underwritten about 700 million in commercial loans, many of them being apartment complex, self-storage facilities, mobile home right. parks. So the skill set that he brings to the team is just, I mean, unmatched. I, I, I don't know how many years and years it would take me to learn all the things that that he does for the group. So definitely see the value in that. And the other thing I have to say about your wife's contribution, it sounds like it was invaluable. But another thing I would note is how awesome to have your partners buy in to your real estate aspirations. So one thing we hear a lot with aspiring real estate investors is how do I get my wife or my husband involved? They don't want to do it, but I want to do it. So it sounds like the fact that she had already had that exposure to the industry and was already sold on the concept and the dream just made it that much easier for her to support you. And that just means so much when you're operating as a team unit pushing forward. Yeah, that's really a great point. You know, what's really interesting is when I was in commercial banking, my first motivation was to be a bank president, right? I tell that story all the time. I'm in telecom. I still have a W-2 job. And for years and years, you know, my, my aspirations were to be the president of that company. And at some point along the way, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, started kind of learning about passive and, and financial independence. And all of a sudden, I had no desire at all to move up in the corporate world for somebody else. Right. So it, it's really interesting because I, I come from a very entrepreneurial background. My father, my mom, my mom, eighth grade education. My dad is the academic, right? But I always say that my mom has a master's degree in life. They both have very different skill sets, but I'm grateful for them both because they both have allowed me to live in both extremes, right? Sure. And I've learned that there's no negative. One extreme doesn't create more advantage than the other. It's how you combine the two. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for them both because in my world, I deal with extremely wealthy people. And I also have to deal in day-to-day, everyday life with just the various people that I interact with and manage. And so both skill sets, um, I've learned to, because I was raised in that environment, right? I mean, I grew up on the South Pacific where the median income man was $2,000 a year. South Pacific, where exactly are you from? It's a small island called Panape, which is southeast of Guam. Okay. But it's not the medium, it's the per capita income rather. 
okay, is even till today, it's $2,000 a year. When I was growing up, they didn't have a minimum wage. They called it a standard wage and it was 35 cents an hour. Today, you know, I mean, I'm not, and that was probably when I was five years old. I'm not five anymore. Today, it's a buck 25. Can you imagine? Yeah. So, so, you know, it's really given me a lot of perspective, but I think one of the big advantages that has come from that is just learning how to see opportunity everywhere, right? Because that background, you know, working with my dad who really influenced or pushed me towards education and my mom, her influence was just, look, you know, when it's all said and done, don't be a smart dummy. You still have to learn how to go out there and do things, right? You still have to learn how to apply what you're learning. And if you're not applying what you're learning, then you're wasting what you're learning. And she was extraordinary with people, man. So I'm, I'm grateful for both, just both styles of being, right? They're just very different people, but they complemented each other. And I learned a lot from them. Very grateful. Awesome. And where do you live today? Today, I live in uh, San Diego in, in California in this community called Carlsbad, you know, kind of a beach community. Where do you invest? I invest in, in different states. So I, I, I like San Diego because, you know, San Diego, there's a shortage of product here in San Diego, especially with multifamily product. Because of that, though, the price is a little bit steeper than in other areas, low cap rates, but there's always opportunities. So in San Diego right now, you know, one of the things that we're doing because of the shortage of supply, and I think there's just better value is we're building, right? We're finding product to reposition and we're building. So for example, building out a six unit apartment building near Cal State San Marcos. I've owned that land for quite some time and, and I think now is a, a great time to do it. And then we're also working through the planning process on a hundred units near downtown San Diego. So some unique opportunities there and have a couple of those in my pipeline in various stages, but everything outside of San Diego, you know, we buy product that's already built out, usually value add C B product, right? In CB neighborhoods, usually in the path of progress, but there's some value add component to them. It's either deferred maintenance or, you know, they're being undermanaged, usually a combination of both. And, uh, you know, fortunately we were doing a lot of construction, right? Flipping and we're doing ground up construction and small subdivisions. So we have really strong construction backgrounds and that's really played into our ability to be able to, I think, value opportunities a little bit differently than most people pursuing traditional investments. You know, we love multifamily, but I also love office and I also love industrial product when it makes sense, right? And so, so I've, learned, I've learned to look for opportunity. How do you feel about office in this current environment? Because it, it seems as if the last year has taught us a thing or two possibly about the demand for office going forward. Well, you know, I, I think it also, it depends on the market that you're in. I think because right now vacancy is on the rise with office buildings, right? I'm not telling you anything you don't know or our listeners or audience that they don't already know. It's pretty commonly discussed today, okay? Sure. So, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in that you have to go in the opposite direction of the masses, Okay, if the masses are taking a right, I take a hard left. Zig what everybody else is zagging. That's where the opportunity is. So I do like, I think there's tremendous opportunity in office, that asset class. Again, it's just a matter of creating clarity around where we need to spend our time to find an acquisition or an investment that makes sense for us. 
so that's how we're approaching that. But the time and energy that I'm committing to that is not as great as some of the other asset classes like multifamily, right? I mean, that's where we're spending most of our time, energy and resources. But there will be, I think, some great opportunities to be purchased in that particular class of, of investment, right? Which is office space. Got it. So we haven't had anybody on the show who's really elaborated too much on industrial, but it seems like industrial is definitely not going anywhere anytime soon. Can you break down for us uh, what you look for in industrial space type opportunity? Well, I mean, I don't buy a lot of industrial product. That's really not my my area of, of specialty, but I can, I can share some thoughts on it if that's sure. what you're asking me. So really interesting. I was on a call the other day just trying to get a better sense for how things are evolving, right? Between all asset classes or the primary asset classes, office, retail, industrial, and then of course, multifamily. Inside of that, you have some subsets such as self-storage and mobile home parks. I didn't really touch on that, but I think having a really healthy understanding of what's happening on a macro level makes you smarter at investing on a micro level, right? Sure. So, I think one of the reasons why industrial product has held up so well as an investment is because in markets that are thriving, okay, and in markets that are soft like this, in this case, a little bit different because it's driven by a pandemic or a health issue, a lot of that space is being used for distribution. Okay. So, for example, you know, if you think about an industrial product or an industrial space versus office space, an office has a very limited use, right? It's us coming in, working out of that particular space. Usually that space is very specific to that, to that operation, which makes it less marketable if that company had to move out, right? Because typically someone's moving into a space for very specific needs, especially a business. Industrial space, on the other hand, technically is just a box that's empty Right. And that business is going in and they're using that space predominantly to either build something. Okay. Or to store and ship, to store and transport. Right. Or to sell and transport. But usually that space, a component of that is being used for storage. Right. Or to build. And so the office component within that is relatively small compared to the other component of that space. Right. Maybe it's 15% office, the majority for either building and selling product or storing and transferring product. So consequently, industrial space is just more marketable. It has more uses, Sure. okay? Which is why in this market, it's been a lot more stable. If you think about the Amazons of the world, right now, online retailers and grocery stores and food distributors having the best probably sales cycle of their entire being, right? Existence. Yeah. Okay. And online retailers, they're going to continue to start adopting more buyers because of what's going on right now. The adoption rate is higher. And you can imagine an Amazon, right? They're selling online, but a lot of their product, even when you buy, they're selling their own product. Well, all that product has to get stored somewhere. Okay. That's industrial space. That's storing all that product. Does that make sense? And it has to get distributed from somewhere. Okay, all that product is being distributed from from industrial space, warehousing, or warehouses, if you will. The office component relative to that space is very small. So you can just 
it's more marketable because you have more uses for that space. My major concern about office and not office as a subset of an industrial project, but, you know, just strictly office, you know, working in telecom, I've made a living for years selling people on technology that can allow for remote workers. And, and since the pandemic hit, it's been like busiest time of my life because all of these companies had to transition to pretty much all remote workers for several months. And a majority of those companies are, they're sticking with it. They said, you know what, we, we decided, we learned from the pandemic that, you know, we're actually fine with 70% of our employees working from home. What do you think the long-term demand for office space, how do you think it'll be affected by that? You know, I, I think there's going to be some, there's for sure there's going to be some impact. Okay. And so the way that I look at it, man, is I try to simplify this stuff, right? Because oftentimes, you know, one of the great things about this country that we live in is everybody has an opinion, okay? If we didn't, there'd be no opportunity. So, so competing opinions create a market, right? Okay, competing opinions create a market. In other words, we don't really get to know who's right until about five years later once we prove out our thesis, right? Right. And, and that's the, the beauty of, of the United States is competing opinions create a market, okay? The idea is who's willing to step behind their theory, or their thesis. Okay. So with that being said, I think that there's, there's always going to be opportunity. It's just a matter of just being diligent and being willing to stand behind, you know, and take action on your thesis, right? What your assumptions are. And, and so I, I like that for those reasons. Okay. Now let me say this. Okay. Where, where's the opportunity? All right. So again, I love going in the opposite direction of the masses. So industrial product, very stable, okay? I'm not going to be spending much time there because I don't think there's any margin there at this point sure. uh, because that product is still in demand and it's performing fairly well. Retail space, uh, you know, a lot of vacancy there right now and, and there's going to continue to be. Same thing for office, but let's talk about the reasons for that, okay? Let's talk about the reasons for that. Okay, so what most people don't realize is history is a great teacher of what we can expect re- on a relative basis going forward right? So let's look at the last two recessions, okay? In the 1990s, late 1990s, and in 2008, 2009, okay? It took roughly 24 months to work through those recessions on average, okay? And that was some data that I looked at different, different, different places, but also that was published by Cushman and Wakefield, their analysts, and they, of course, extrapolated that from a couple of different sources. And so that was pretty consistent with what I was seeing, right? So, okay, that means we can reasonably assume that going through this downturn right now is going to take us at least 24 months to come out of it, meaning we're back on a growth tra- trajectory, right? Sure. We can assume that, right, on a reasonable basis. Now, let's talk about jobs, okay? So jobs, from 2008 to 2020, January of, okay, it took us 10 years to create 10 million jobs. 10 years, okay, 10 years. Okay, now at the height of the pandemic, I think it was in March, April, maybe, okay, we had roughly 50 million people that, that applied for unemployment, 50 million. And in, and in this country, we have roughly 320 million people that live here, right? Sure. And it was likely higher than that. So I think now we're down to 30 million that are unemployed, maybe a little bit more than that now. So you have to ask yourself, is it reasonable to assume, okay, that we're going to be able to create 30 million jobs, man, in a couple of months, right. when it took us 10 years to build 10 million jobs, 
it's just unrealistic. It's not going to happen. Not to mention that this time around, you know, my feeling is 25% of the jobs lost in this market are not coming back. Okay. Most of them retail, a lot of them small business. They're just not going to come back, not going to come back. So those jobs being eliminated, right? We have 30 million people unemployed. It took us 10 years to build 10 million jobs. Okay. We're not going to do that in one month. We're not going to do that in a year. And we're definitely not going to do that in two years. Okay. So that should give you some impact that still hasn't been accounted for as we go forward. Right? So the question now becomes, okay, how do you spend your time, energy, and money to find these opportunities? There's going to be opportunity in retail. There's going to be opportunity in office. And there's definitely going to be opportunity multifamily for those reasons. Sure. Absolutely. So let's switch gears a little bit. I think so far we focused more on the macro picture. Can we go into the micro a little bit? Can you highlight your biggest win, your favorite deal, your biggest home run? And then after that, maybe detail one for us that was a crash and burn, something that didn't go as planned. And oh, uh, shit, geez, I have a lot yeah. of High, highs and lows, highs and lows. Give us a high. Yeah, so I'm going to start a- with the low. I'm going to start with the low first. This is my most expensive uh, seminar, I call it. <laughs> nice. um, greatest learning lesson. I actually have a couple of these. So one of them was what I call my first million dollar mistake, right? I had an eight unit apartment in escrow here in San Diego. I had it in escrow for 700 grand, had some foundational issues that the seller wasn't disclosing. They didn't want to let me in the building. And I knew there was something wrong, but I also knew that, hey, it was a great price. I could see the building was leaning a little bit. At the time, we were kind of coming through the 2008 recession, so banks were freaking slow as molasses, man, to get deals financed. I went to a traditional bank. They were comfortable with me because I had good credit. I had assets. I had cash. But they took freaking forever to get that deal funded. So finally, when they were ready to fund, okay, the, the seller passed away. Oh, wow. Okay, seller passed. When he passed, it just created a huge mess with his estate, okay? The estate didn't want to sell anymore. And, you know, I had some very close friends that were my partners in that deal. And they were coming in as 50% owners. I was taking the other 50%. And I, I sold half of that away to them because they, they were with me when I started, right? Okay, in 2008, man, you know, they were betting on this guy, John Brackett, when sure. no one else would. So I said, hey, guys here is a massive bonus. Okay. We're all going to do really well with this deal. Okay. Once we stabilize it, it may take two, three years to fix all these issues and get this property stabilized, but we should make close to about $800,000, $900,000 on this deal. Okay. In a very low vacancy market, even back then vacancy was two, 3%. So the issue was the state no longer wanted to sell. They're, you know, threatening litigation. And I was like, look, for the amount of time that it's going to take to freaking litigate this, I can go and find three, four other deals and replicate this, this kind of wealth, right? I mean, that's just how I think. It's like, sure. You know, I got everybody on the phone. I said, okay, here's the issue. These folks don't want to sell. We can sue for specific performance and I have everything documented extraordinarily well. Sell even has already signed off on the deed. It's an escrow. I mean, I have this thing so well documented the likelihood of us winning, I feel is pretty high, right? And I already ran everything by an attorney. But, you know, what I think and actually what takes place, okay, of course, very different, right? Because sure. if, we, if we move this forward, I knew I really had a strong feeling that we were not going to settle, okay? This would actually go to either an arbitrator and uh, we'd get a decision. Okay, so everybody decided I wanted to still move forward 
okay. But then I go, you know what, let me take this to my partners. They said, hey, John, you know, we don't want to litigate. This is just not a good use of time money. Okay. It would have cost us about a hundred grand, but there was upside in that deal. So everybody was like, well, we should have think about it, but the decision was no. So I said, okay, great. So we canceled escrow and we moved on. But the lesson there that I learned from that, and I never made, made this mistake again, okay, is don't waste time squabbling over pennies, okay, when you have massive upside, right? I could have closed that deal much faster with more expensive, you know, financing. I could have closed that deal in two weeks. Sure. Instead, went to a slow bank in a market where banks were afraid of their own shadow and they had to cross every single T and dot every single I because of what was happening and the regulators were very, um, everything just got very heavily regulated, right? So it was just a very painful process. So the biggest lesson there was, and I call that my first million dollar mistake, is don't squabble over pennies, man, when you have huge upside that you can capture, right? I was, I was pretty confident that I had learned that lesson a long time ago, trying to nickel and dime somebody, losing a phenomenal deal. And I swore I would never do that again. And then I actually lost another deal yesterday trying to nickel and dime someone. So and, Don't do and it, man. I lost 50 grand trying to save five. So I definitely hear you and need, needed to hear that story. So, so uh, yeah, we'll I, never, I never made that mistake again, man. I constantly <laughs> remind myself. In fact, I still have the PPM on that deal. And uh, I put it up for probably about two years right in front of me just to remind myself. Don't squabble over pennies, man. Not when you have huge upside. That, that was a really good lesson. Fortunately, it happened early on in my career. So I was able to use that learning experience and create other opportunity from that, right? So that was one. The second, this is my most expensive seminar. So we were growing really, really fast. Probably had eight projects going at one time and had a project manager that was overseeing construction that, you know, I hired this person to oversee this and he had no business being in that role. He just did not have the experience, didn't have the confidence. And it, was, it wasn't his fault. It was really mine. It was a leadership issue. Okay. Sure. And that was a very, very expensive mistake. But I hired him. I thought I could develop this person over and above the experience that he already had. Right. In that, in that industry and in construction, that was a very poor decision. And I ended up paying for it very dearly. So he was a younger person and uh, the contractors just ate him up, man. They had their way with him. They just had their way with him. And before I realized what was going on, I was looking at our matrix every single week and I would talk to him. I'd say, hey, how's things coming along? I see that, right? We had a matrix that reported every single project. But the only way that those reports were accurate if they were being reported accurately from the field up, right? Sure. So... We showed, say, for example, 70, 50% progress on projects and they were only 25%. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and because of his inexperience, he didn't have the confidence to deal with the contractors or the experience. Contractors uh, can be brutal. They can be very brutal, man. They can be very, very brutal. And so consequently, uh, you know, what was being reported and what was actually happening in the field, two different stories. So a couple months went by and... Things were just not right, right? I mean, I go, man, this, is, this can't be right. This just cannot be right. So finally, I went down and I drove all the projects. And uh, man, nothing that was reported 
in our progress reports was mapping up to what I saw in the field. And I was out there all day walking every project, talking to every single contractor, every trade that was on site, looking at the project, looking at our sheets, figuring out. And on average, say we were reporting, you know, 60% complete. Those projects are probably 20% complete with just things that were not done properly, right? So in that moment, when I got to the end of the day, I called up my teams. And I also, after that, I spoke to my wife and I said, hey, we have a big problem. Okay. You know, we're in a position where we're likely going to lose about $2 million. And it's going to take us about two years to get through this, to be able to pay everybody back. And it's going to be very painful. But I said, I'll do it and we'll do it. But I just have to let you know that this is the reality of what we're going to have to deal with over the next two years. Okay. This is just the reality. So that's what we did, man. Called her up. And I remember sitting down on the beach, you know, just thinking about what I had to do to get through this, made a decision. And it took me 18 months to pay all that money back. Very painful, very painful process, but I paid it all back about $2 million, managed that loss down to about 30,000 for us. And we moved forward, but massive lesson learned there. But the biggest takeaway there was first of all, people, right? Leadership you have to lead from the front, okay? As a leader, you gotta lead from the front, man. You set the example as a leader and you cannot rely, those days of speaking to one thing and then expecting someone else to do it without you setting the example, those days were over, right? That was the first thing. The second thing is, you know, you have to hire the right people and put the right people in the right positions, okay? And experience does matter, okay? Sure. Depending on the role especially in, in a job like construction, okay, in an industry like construction. It's just a very different industry, right? And, and so experience matters. That was really critical. Hiring the right people matters. Putting them in the right places matter. But also leading them is perhaps the most important thing. And the reality was that was a $2 million learning lesson. The third thing that I learned from that was just the value of resolve, right? There are a lot of things that I may not know but one of the things that I do know is I will find a way to get to the finish line every single time. And that's why I believe that my partners and my investors have stayed with me for this long. And even in markets like this, they're still investing alongside of me for that reason. Every single investor that we had in those projects, they're still with us to this day. And so that was a very valuable lesson in that, you know, that experience and that mistake built my capacity to take on larger projects, right? Okay, 100 unit projects. So now we're working through a 100 unit development near downtown San Diego. And those experiences gave me, literally created inside of me, the capacity to take on very large projects because I know I'll always find a way to the finish line. Those are the challenges. <laughs> so, so give us a home run real quick. Tell us a, tell us a good story. Well, I got a, lo I got a lot of those, fortunately especially after some non-home runs, right? Let's see, I'll give you a small one and then I'll give you a really big one, okay? I'm not gonna go into the details on the big one because on that one, I, I have a confidentiality agreement in sure. place, so I have to be really mindful of that. But I'll give you a really small one, one that just happened about two weeks ago. Close on that one about two weeks ago, okay? A big one and a small one. So the big one I can't, I'm not going to mention units or anything like that, okay? And I'm not going to mention location. The big one is a multifamily project, okay, property. It was a joint venture where that property was being underutilized. 
and just had a, an extreme amount of deferred maintenance. And so, you know, I reach out to sellers quite a bit and I'm very specific about how, who I reached out to. The seller of this is existing asset, they agreed to joint venture where they contributed the land. We came in with all the construction expertise, right? We improved it with all of our own money. We took on all that risk. Their contribution was the land and improvements. We worked through that project and there was some really huge upside for everybody. Very, very successful project, right? I mean, a couple million dollars in success, okay? And so that was a great opportunity. But what made that so special was the partnership that was created, okay, with all the parties involved. I find that the greatest opportunities, I think, moving forward as deals become, as supply becomes more constrained and more limited because we're not manufacturing land, Sure. Okay. Are going to come from people who can think differently. Okay. And solve problems, right? They had a problem that I was able to solve and they felt comfortable with the solution and how I mitigated their risk, which was the reason why they wanted to work with me over and above everyone else that was making presentations to, to them. And they, they did receive probably two other presentations outside of mine from much larger firms, much, much larger. But fortunately, they chose us and, you know, we performed and uh, the outcome was awesome. The outcome was awesome. The second one, which is a small one, and I got into this conversation two days ago with a buddy of mine, a couple different reasons, but I'll explain, right? So just to give you the backdrop, I had a friend of mine who underwrites, is an underwriter for a large real estate investment company, okay? And they're typically buying 200 unit projects, 300 unit projects. $20 million or so. And so we got into this discussion and I said, well, you know, he was quantifying risk, right? In the form of an internal rate of return. And I said, well, that means something to you because you're the one raising capital. Okay. And you're using that to present to investors. Now take the investor out. Okay. How would you look at that deal? How would you look at it differently? And he paused for a really long time. Okay. Because when your own money's in a deal, you price it very differently, right? Sure. The considerations that you make are much different than if you're using someone else's. And that's why I really am a firm believer in that you, you, if you want to be really successful in this space, you have to start with your own money because it gives you a different level of discipline and a different level of respect, okay, for risk and how mm-hmm. to quantify risk. Okay, so with that said, I said, okay, well, when you take that out, I said, well, how do you price your capital, right? How do you price your capital? How do you decide if you had 10 deals going on, which deal to invest in, okay? Assuming that, of course, every single opportunity is going to look a little differently, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you price your capital? Okay, how do you price it? And he used a very complicated matrix, okay? And I said, look, I said, you're talking from the viewpoint of someone who's never put their own money behind something. And I said, I look, I appreciate it. I get it. But let me explain to you how, how I do it, okay? And how we do it here as a company because I don't have a billion dollar balance sheet, okay? It makes things very different. I have to be selective about what I pursue, okay? And also what I put my investors or my partners, how they invest alongside of me, okay? And I go, for me, it's really simple, man. It's time, energy, and money in that order. When I look at deals, I make an assessment on things based on time, energy, and money. 
Therefore, I don't always, it doesn't have to be a big deal. Okay. When I do find something that I think makes a lot of sense, then we buy. But, you know, I'm more focused on profits and not size. Okay. Sure. I don't want to be the guy that is at the party talking about, I have 10,000 units, but the reason why I'm not talking about profits is because they're, they're not all profitable, right? Or what's really common in the syndication world is people will go brag about, I've got 10,000 units, but you know, at the end of the day, they own a quarter of a percent of those 10,000 units. Perfect example. <laughs> Perfect example, right? Perfect example. So I've learned to really focus on profits, okay? And the way that I prioritize that is time, energy, and money. So I gave him a really good example. And I said, man, this is a great example because I just closed on this about two weeks ago. And fortunately, when we were in escrow, the seller let us start working on the construction while we were in escrow, okay? Oh, wow. Major construction. All I did was I increased our, our general liability insurance. I was about to say, isn't that a liability issue for them? Yep. Added them on as, as loss, loss pay. Got it. Okay. They were comfortable with that. So that was their concern and I solved the problem, right? So they say, hey, John, if you know, our concern is that something happens while we're in escrow, got the title company, comfortable with it. Of course, they had their exclusions. I was comfortable with the exclusions because the contractors are folks that we've worked with for many, many years, right? Mm -hmm. And so bought several homes next to an apartment building that we already own, okay? And normally I would not buy that project. Why? Too small and in theory, not very profitable, right? But after I started talking to the broker, he called me up and the first seller was not able to perform because those properties were built in the 1920s, a lot of foundational issues. That happens to be one of our areas of specialty, right? Over the years, got really good at dealing with foundational issues. So I knew where the properties were because it's next to an apartment building that we own. The previous owner, I knew her, they knew me. The apartment project was probably 50 feet away from these homes. The apartments were, before we took them over, very problematic. Now, you know, one of the shining gems in that community, right? And a sure. great performer for us. So I already knew the market really well, okay? We already had management in place there. So very easy decision, right? Again, time, energy, and money. Not going to take a lot of time because we fold it into an existing portfolio, okay? Not going to require a lot of energy, project small. So this is what the numbers looked like, okay? The way that we underwrote that deal and the way that we were able to buy it, even after all of our improvements, we netted, you know, we're going to net uh, about $30,000 a year free cash flow from that property, right? Mm -hmm. Three homes. Okay. Three homes. Wow. Okay? All in aggregate on about two and a half acres. Okay. Right across from something that we already own. So the value creation from that is going to be about a half a million dollars net. And the beauty is I bought that hundred percent financing Okay, technically 140% because I got a loan that included 100% of the improvements as well, right? Purchase price plus construction costs at 4% interest. Oh, wow. Okay, so when we get that done, okay, when we get that done, I'm going to refinance that into a 30-year fixed rate product, right? Okay, in this market, single family, 30-year fix, cheap. That was a big factor in me doing this. So think about this, right? Okay, we started construction on that project before we closed. So technically, we're going to be done with this thing, have all of those homes completely renovated in 45 days. Have a team out there that I know really well, 
worked with for 15 years, don't need to spend a lot of time with them, create a scope of work that we've used repeatedly for probably the last 15 years. Okay, material list that we've used repeatedly for the last 15 years. And they go, and I know they're going to perform really well. I'll probably follow up with them once a week for 30 minutes. In today's market with technology, we use video. I can see exactly what's going on and I know where progress is, right? Mm -hmm. So I'll spend maybe, maybe my time. I'm talking about my time, okay? Total of on that project, my time, 20 hours. 20 hours. My staff, W2, a fraction of that, maybe one twelfth of a percent, W2 person. Everything else is contract labor already built into the price with improvements, right? Sure. So time, energy, very little energy, very little time, the money, money. <laughs> in this case, okay, not my own, but work with a lender that I've worked with for 15 years. Okay. Everything was done via email. They're able to fund it. They know me, know my track record. And so we're going to get that thing finished with construction, fully leased up in about 45 days. Okay, it's going to generate $30,000 a year net. Well, technically 28. That includes vacancy, 28,000. Fully leased, fully occupied. Of course, they're home, so they will be. That's 30. So let's say 28 with a 5% vacancy, okay? Managed by an existing team. Okay, net value creation. It's not a half a million. It's like 450,000. Sure. Okay, minus all of our costs. Do you see the difference? Absolutely. Okay, and I own that 100%, right? Or technically my trust does. So that's why I really want, like, you know, you have to like really listen to people when they talk about this business because most of the time people are not saying very much. It's like, man, why is there so much emphasis around units? Why don't you ever talk about profitability, right? Well, you know what always, what really gets me is uh, the people who claim their unit numbers from the projects they're passively invested in. You know, I could go invest 25 grand in one of Joe Fairless's 477 apartment, you know, unit buildings and say, oh, I have 477 units. Yeah. So there has to be, so I'll give you an example. You know, I get approached by people, investors, at least two deals a week to co-invest. So I have a criteria. I always send out, I say, hey, look, I'm, I look at the deal. I look at the location, make some quick decisions. Yeah. I'm very open to it. This is my criteria, right? And usually that criteria alone will, will, I won't hear from them again, just like this deal, didn't hear from them. But one of the criteria is, okay, if we like the deal and preliminarily meets our hurdles is I want to see your credit report and I want to see your personal financial statement. Because you can tell me you have 2,000 units, but if that doesn't translate into you having, you having good credit, because a bank will ask for that, right? You go to a bank, sure. you get a loan. What, those are the first things a bank asks for, right? Credit report and a personal financial statement. Why do you think that is? Right. Why? Because your credit report will determine your character, okay, on paper. Pretty good tool, right? Yeah. To make a decision whether or not I should be lending this person money at an inexpensive rate of 4%. Your personal financial statement will dictate, other than the words that come out of your mouth, is this someone who's actually created wealth before? Okay, can I trust what's coming out of your mouth based on actually what you've created on paper? Tangible assets. So when people invest with us, one of the things that I do always, even now, man, I just give them a credit report and my personal financial statement, right? Sure. This is who I am on paper, okay? 
Last credit report was at 833 FICO score. And that was from a bank that did a refinance from us. And this is how I built all my wealth. So you can see it. That way there, I don't need to spend a lot of time selling people on like all this fluff because it's a waste of time. It's right. a waste of time, man. And the same thing when I, when I venture with people, right? It's like, look, I really appreciate how amazing you are. I get it. I get it. You're amazing. And you have 5,000 units and you want me to invest in your project because you have all this experience. That's great. But can you show me a credit report? And can I see your personal financial statement? And the crazy thing is I usually don't get those items. <laughs> Why do you think that is? They're okay. not as great so, as they're talking up to be. <laughs> yeah. So my point is there's opportunity out there everywhere. And one of the beauties of this business, okay, and this is why, man, I love the United States, okay, is that people have opposing views and different opinions of how to do things, the same thing. And that's what creates the opportunity. But what I've learned over the years is to not get distracted with volume, focus on profits and things that make sense. And so I've learned to align my lifestyle with how I need to do business to support my lifestyle, right? Sure. And that doesn't mean standing on a freaking mountain, man, with a freaking blowhorn and telling everybody all the crazy, you know, right? Hey, I got this, that, the other. It doesn't waste time. Sure. What it does mean is, hey, look, let's focus on things that make sense. And for the folks that want to invest with me, I'm fully transparent and I'm willing to show you exactly what I've done and how. And yes, there are thousands of other people out there that have done it better than me, but this is how I've done it. And this is what has created success. And I'm very transparent in talking about that. So. Absolutely. So it looks like we're getting close to our time. I just wanted to break over to our radio round real quick and just ask a couple questions to help our listeners get to know you a little bit better. First one is what's your favorite book? Let me open this up, man. The one that I'm reading right now is how to own your own mind by Napoleon Hill. Oh, love hey, really good book. Napoleon Hill. Love yeah. some Napoleon Hill. How to own your own mind. Same things that we we're talking about, right? How to own your own mind, how to make your own decisions irrespective of all the noise around you. Absolutely. Make decisions around what makes sense, not noise. Sift out the noise and focus on what matters most. So this is a really good book. I really like it. Let's see Napoleon Hill. What's the next question? What's your favorite quote? Uh, let's see. My favorite quote is by Henry Ford. And that is, let me see if I can remember this. This one is my absolute favorite. It is failure is the, is the opportunity to begin again, this time more intelligently. Good stuff. Okay, I and, love that quote. And what's your favorite thing to do outside of work? I'm like a real big family guy. I mean, I have three daughters, right? I mean, I, my kids are all very active. They're very independent. So I spend a lot of time with my family when I'm not working and very active this morning. Did a beach workout with my 14-year-old and my wife at 6.30, working out, watching the sun come up. And I'm also awesome. very active. So right now I'm training for a 48-miler in the Grand Canyon. Okay. Should be fun. So I, I like stuff like that, man. I just, I, I'm really active. I like the act outdoors. I, I, I just like challenging myself. I think physical challenges are are good. They keep us young and they keep us awake, you know? Yeah. So I've done several marathons and ultra is on my list, but I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not there right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yesterday, yesterday, the first time I go, man, I was a little drained. I was doing stairs. I did about a mile of stairs on, on Sunday and then my calves were 
the calves were hurting for like two days, man. I go, man. And I was still working out in between, right? So yeah, yesterday, yesterday I was a little, I felt a little fatigued, but today I feel great. So yeah, man, I love challenges, right? doesn't matter if it's endurance or I just love challenges, physical challenges. It's great. Awesome. So how can our listeners find out more about you? Uh, yeah, you, absolutely. So I, I think the best way at this point is you can link in with me on LinkedIn, go to LinkedIn, link in with me on LinkedIn. You can message me if you have questions. For those of you that may have an interest in, you know, you may have a property that you want to discuss venturing on together. LinkedIn is a great way. You can also go to our website at fidelitybps.com or Fidelity Business Partners. There's a number there you can reach out directly to. That's a great way for those that may want to engage with us via podcast. And you want to be on our podcast, you can go to podcast at fidelitybps.com. And so those are three ways, right? LinkedIn is a great way. Message us on LinkedIn. LinkedIn with me. Message me. The second way is you can go to our website, connect with us there on our site at fidelitybps.com or fidelitybusinesspartners.com. And third, if you know, you're someone that wants to engage with us via podcast, you can send my team an email at podcast at fidelitybps.com and they'll send you a link with an application and you're ready to roll. Awesome. Well, John, thank you so much for joining the show. You know, I learned a ton. I know our listeners will too. Our mission here is to educate and inspire and you've undoubtedly done both. So thank you so much and I look forward to staying in touch with you. Awesome, man. Thank you. Really uh, honored to be on the show and had a great time. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at RentRollRadio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at RentRollRadio.com or sterling at CrestworthCapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.